Hello, I'm your host, Sarah Bartley, and you're tuned into another episode of Funding is the Matter. Funding is the Matter is a podcast that talks about the surplus of issues caused by the racial wealth gap. The podcast that breaks down the methods to sustain funding for education and science topics that impact the Black community. This podcast proves to define that Black Lives Matter is a scientific and social problem. Today, I will be introducing Kim Cameron. Can you go into your background and your connection to A&T? Kim Cameron, I'm the executive director of the North Carolina A&T Real Estate Foundation. The Real Estate Foundation serves as like a private real estate company that is associated with the university. I'm originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Went to school at Wisconsin, which is also a land grant institution, just like A&T. I was the first Black woman to graduate with a degree in construction management from that institution way back in 1990. I went on to get my MBA in finance from Concordia University, Wisconsin. And the reason that I did that was because I wanted to get into real estate development. When you do real estate development, it's about putting together a project, but also how the project can finance and be successful financially. Because if the project is not successful financially, you don't have a project. I went back to school to concentrate in finance. My first job with a developer shortly after I finished my degree, probably about mm, a year and a half after, was actually in Gastonia, North Carolina. That's how I moved here with an organization called Mercy Housing. They're a national affordable housing developer, and they were starting a Southeast region, which had three states, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. And so I was their first professional person on the ground. Since then, I've moved to Atlanta in 99, took a job with H.J. Russell and Company. H.J. Russell and Company is the largest Black-owned general contractor. They're also a real estate developer and a property manager. So I went to go work for them to start their real estate development division back up that had really been defunct, I would say, for about 10 years. And then fast forward to 2013, I moved back to North Carolina to take a job with a company called Self-Help as their director of real estate in Durham, North Carolina. And then in 2019, I started here at A&T. For redlining, do you know any information about Greensboro? I don't know if you happen to have a redlining map or not, but the history department at A&T has the redlining map, the original redlining map of Greensboro. The history of redlining is, it goes back. Most cities, believe it or not, had integrated neighborhoods. It was really based upon your income. And it really didn't matter if you were black or white, it's just that if you were poor or middle-class or whatever is where you lived. And then as cities started growing and more black people started moving to cities away from the rural areas because that's where the jobs were. So you think about the history of manufacturing in North Carolina, right? So they still talk about trying to bring manufacturing back to Greensboro. Right. Greensboro had a lot of manufacturing. Um, Durham did the tobacco. And then there's some cities in North Carolina that did textile. Right. Those were jobs. And that's where 
Black people tended to move and they had a pretty good life. They carved out a middle-class lifestyle for themselves. The folks who were, you know, racist, they started passing different types of zoning laws to keep Black people and white people separated from each other. They actually would build Black libraries or Black schools in certain areas and made Black people move over to those areas. Or if there was an integrated neighborhood, they would start banning Black people you know, from those services and then make them move over to the area where the Black serving school or whatever was. They did other things to perpetuate stereotypes, right? Typically, the building materials may have been inferior in which the, um, the houses were built or they were smaller, so there was overcrowding. Also, what they would do is that they would stop services to Black neighborhoods, so they wouldn't pick up the trash, they wouldn't run water sewer to those neighborhoods, they wouldn't pave the roads, right? So all of these things that they did also perpetrated a stereotype of how Black people wanted to live, which is not how Black people wanted to live. They also allowed undesirable uses in Black neighborhoods. It would be where the manufacturing plants were that put off bad pollution. So there, that caused high or still causes high incidence of cancer and asthma, right? Different health conditions. I would put the dumps in Black neighborhoods. So in Greensboro, you have the, the White Oak dump, right? And just as early as 10 years ago, there was a mayor at that time, Robbie Perkins, who was trying to convince city council to reopen that dump. A group was formed specifically for that. I believe it was called the Concerned Citizens for Environmental Justice. And another group that is based in East Durham, they got together and they organized protests and they stopped the dump from being open. They realized their collective political power because it was just not Black people that were protesting. It was people of all races that were protesting with them. They actually organized themselves and picked a, a mayoral candidate and other city council candidates that felt would better represent them. And they won. Their candidates won. This is as early as 2010 and 2011 that this happened. So this is not that long ago in the history of Greensboro, where you still had some inequitable practices going on in uh, the Black neighborhoods. Um, when we talked about the zoning and all that stuff, all that started in the 30s and the 40s or whatever, right? So then you get up to the 1950s, and then there was a systematic plan by the U.S. federal highway system to destroy Black communities particularly Black business communities. It is documented. Every city in America you will go through and there's some type of highway that cuts right through the Black neighborhood that is supposed to lead you downtown. And typically they cut through the business district of the Black neighborhood. The thing about Black people, we are resilient and we're resourceful, right? And we adapt. So what was going on in these cities is that Black people, even though they were segregated, they became self-sufficient, right? So we had our own banks and all this other stuff and shops really didn't need to go into the white community to get anything. So what was the answer? That The answer was to destroy all that. So every single city you go in, there's that story. In 
Greensboro, it's what, Highway 29, right? In Durham, it's Highway 147. In Milwaukee, where I'm from, it's Highway 94. It's so funny because if you travel around to other cities and you do community development work like I do and you're doing tours, someone goes, oh my God, you see this highway here? This used to be blah, blah, blah. And it's so funny because they all think it's a unique story to their city. And I'm like, I stop, I'm like, I know every single city, there is the same exact story. They based it on the premise that the neighborhoods were run down and needed renewal, urban renewal is what they did that under. In Milwaukee, where I'm from, it was so bad that they literally tore up in a straight line going from one particular neighborhood all the way downtown, probably 30 city blocks worth of houses, just tore them down. And then never did anything with it, just left them vacant just because they're just spiteful like that, just crazy. And it's probably like that in every city, too. I know particularly where I grew up, it was just a large swath. The neighborhood my mom grew up in was called Bronzeville, and that's the neighborhood they destroyed. All of this is what I call economic apartheid, right? All of this redlining and this zoning the campaigns, everything is to me to keep Black people in economic apartheid. Because also what this does in your neighborhoods, when I talked about Black businesses, I talk about housing being built with inferior materials. All of that is about wealth building in the Black community. And there's a quote that Michael Bloomberg made right before the pandemic back in 2020, he had a Greenwood project and he went back to Tulsa, Oklahoma, that neighborhood where Black Wall Street was burnt down was called Greenwood District. He says that if Black people were allowed to participate fully in the economic system of the United States, he has, and it would be trillions of dollars here that would be added to the GDP of the U.S. If we could eliminate the racial wealth gap in this generation, we would add $1.5 trillion to the economy. That's crazy. That's to the GDP. Every time there's some type of recession or pandemic, the gap gets worse mm-hmm. between Black people and white people. Everything you said is great. When you're talking about the 30s and 40s, that would be to most people like a confusing time because that's when FDR is there because you would think oh, that- we tell you about FDR. Oh yeah, because that's like, yeah, you know, like the New Deal did leave us FDR out. FDR so. is a myth. He's a myth. <laughs> Franklin D. Roosevelt, everybody lauds him all the time, right? Because he had this new deal. And so he established industrial codes for the manufacturing plants. He established fair labor standards. This is the 30s, right? So it's not quite the 40s yet. The 40s is when a lot of the migration started to happen because, again, this is when the manufacturing started taking off. So the 30s is right he came in after the recession, right? The Great Depression, right? And so the crash happened like around 29. So then Franklin D. Roosevelt, he came in and that's when manufacturing started booming, you know, after that war, the war. And so he started establishing the industrial codes to try to keep people safe. He had the fair labor standards. He had child labor laws and he established the minimum wage. 
But at this time, Black people were still primarily in agriculture. They were still primarily in the fields. He established these codes and almost all the industries except for Black, where Black people predominated. Mm -hmm. So none of this at the time really helped Black people. Then he also established a public works administration. <clears throat> With that, he restricted residents of federal housing projects to the city's racially zoned districts. So what that mean, meant was, I talked about the zoning before, right? And so anything that was zoned white, that's where they put the federal housing projects at. They didn't put them in the black neighborhoods. And so out of that is then where the US Housing Authority was created to start that public housing. Because again, there was a housing, like right now we have a housing shortage. There was a housing shortage going on almost exactly a hundred years ago, about 90 years ago. That's because again, people returned from the war and they were moving into the urban areas. That's actually why the public housing authority was started to try to help alleviate that for the middle class. And what they did was they would frankly go into those integrated neighborhoods, demolish any type of housing, and then create that public housing for the white people. They would close, uh, I mentioned this before, they would close the black schools, the libraries, and they would relocate them to another side of town, forcing those black people to move. And then you had the Federal Housing Administration that was created by the FDR administration too. If you notice Federal Housing Administration, though, those are FHA, right? And so this is where the FHA loan started. They developed a mortgage program that would ensure the amortized mortgages to promote home ownership, except they would not insure the mortgages to African-Americans. And they would not lend to developers and builders that would sell to African-Americans. A lot of the subdivisions and everything that you see today were started and built back then. And the builders would actually get the mortgages directly from FHA and it would be insured in case something would happen, right? So if you had some type of natural disaster or something else would go on, that mortgage would be insured, that interest rate would be lower, and they would not do that if that builder would sell to Black people. And so, again, any new housing that happened, Black people weren't able to participate. Today, there's a different type of FHA discrimination going on. We, have, again, have another housing crisis. <clears throat> they won't accept a lot of FHA loans because once an appraisal happens on a house right now and that person is using the FHA loan, that appraisal has to stay. So if there's houses selling in your neighborhood like yours and they're selling for $10,000, $20,000 more, that seller won't be able to get it, get that extra $10,000, $20,000 because the FHA appraisal has stated what that house is worth and it has to stay. Today, the interest rate is low. It's a low down payment. Black people weren't able to take part of that. What they were allowed to do was buy a house on what is called a contract. And it was just almost like a lease. They didn't build any equity in that house. It was a high interest loan and there was no grace period. And so what that means is if you were late on your house payment, usually there's 15 day grace period or 30 day grace period. They immediately went to repossess that house. And so they would lose their house and any work they put into it, 
And, and of course, they couldn't build equity. So it would just be gone, just like a lease. Again, what all this did, because if someone was able to buy a house on contract, the payment was so high that there was no money left to make repairs, right? And I also already talked about that the building materials were typically inferior. And then what people did was they brought in tenants. And so they would rent out a room. And so you may have had people in a closet just trying to have a bed there. So that promoted overcrowding. A lot of these loans, too, were made to suburbs and part of the city working class. And now I'm up to like the 1950s, right? 1950s, 1960s. So if you think about 1950s, 1960s, so we're 50 plus 70 years away from that time. And you think about <clears throat> that house back then, they probably bought that house maybe for 5,000, maybe 50,000 at the most. All those houses, when I actually put this together, this was last year in 2021, uh, now we're 300. Now those houses are probably in a year, probably worth 500. You see stories where it's even worse than that, where some houses are worth a million. You just think about all that equity because those people who bought those houses in the 50s and 60s, they're still alive, most likely. They may be 70, 80 years old. They have a lot of equity in that house. And that equity is typically used to send kids to college, take care of other parents, or a lot of times it's to fund retirement. The Black community has lost on all those years. Also, what happens is that there's an equitable appraisal prices. Just by a Black person could own a house in a white neighborhood. And then if an appraiser knows a Black person lives there, they will appraise that house fifty dollars to $100,000 plus less in value. Let's not even talk about when a house is in a Black neighborhood. It's just as bad. This isn't Greensboro, but this is Durham because I was talking to some Durham people. But this is a red lining map, and there's one just like this for Greensboro. And so typically the reds were danger. That's typically where the Black folks live. That's where other things happen, right? So they wouldn't insure you or insurance was higher. If you overlay a crime map or low graduation rate, anything for today, They'll, those areas will probably match up completely. I already talked about this with you, about the urban revitalization systematically destroyed African-American communities in the business districts. Communities were lost, businesses destroyed, commerce never returned, and the wealth never came back in those neighborhoods. My follow-up question to the after FDR. So mm-hmm. one of the people's also thing is we're also coming back from the war. So shouldn't people with the GI Bill, shouldn't we be able to also, because there also are housing. Black like, people um, weren't allowed to use the GI Bill. So can you go further into how, even when people did apply, how they would instantly be rejected for the GI Bill? Can you explain what the GI Bill and how important that is as well at that same time frame as well? So the GI Bill allowed returning war veterans to use money for either education or to get a house. So it was like asset building, right? And so the Black veterans weren't allowed to use that. So again, we have a lost opportunity 
for wealth building. A lot of times they weren't even made aware that these programs existed, that they could even, even if they knew about it and if they applied, they were turned down. So again, opportunity to improve life, increase wealth, increase generational wealth in families, just again, gone, just lost. People ask like, it's all Kim, what's your opinion? How do we get out of this? How do we get out of this situation that we're in? And a lot of times when you talk to politicians or people who are in some municipal administrative role, they want to create policies or programs, right? But they always just want to create one program. What I've been hearing with the Biden administration is that they want to create a down payment assistance program, right? They think that being able to um, help people, 20,000, 40,000, maybe down payment assistance on these houses that are just out of control pricing will help them. But there's other problems besides that. One, again, I just talked about how sellers won't accept FHA. They won't accept down payment assistance program either, money. Why? Because it's a governmental program. Anything involving the government is going to take a long time. Somebody who already has that money can close within five days, two days, right? You hear about housing, houses going on the market and being basically sold in a week because that person has their money in the bank. They have a loan ready. They're ready to go. So if somebody wants to get in and out and sell that house like that, they're not going to wait for somebody who has a down payment assistance money waiting for the state or the city or the federal government to go in because what's probably going to happen is somebody's going to want to come in and inspect the house. And then they're going to want to look at this and they're going to look at that. And then they have to wait for the money to get in. So if the free market is boom, 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 that's not going to work. The other reason why it most likely will not help is because someone's credit may not be together. And it takes about two years to fix bad credit. So you can't just say, we think we have this pool of people who all they have to do is apply for down payment assistance and then their credit is jacked up. You have to look at this holistically because it was a holistic approach that got us here. It was a lot of systems working together to keep Black people down in numerous ways. So you can't just go in and think, oh, we're going to do this down payment. Oh, we're just going to go over here and do credit repair. Or we're going to do homeowner, first time homeowner buyer counseling. All this works together. That's that part, right? That's on the buyer part. Then what are you going to do on the seller part? So you got to fix that too. Are you going to buy houses in advance and hold them for people? How are you going to convince somebody on the free market to work with these people? You can't, right? There's no way. But you can potentially fund nonprofits that build houses and fund them to build houses that will sell to people who have the down payment assistance program, who need the credit repair, right? Who need the home buyer counseling training. You have to look at, to so me, that's that holistic approach. Then I was on a panel with Congressman David Price and this guy named Jimbo Parrott. He was a um, advisor to the Obama administration. He's with this group called Urban Institute. And he threw out this statistic out there going, you know, well, Black homeowners default at a much higher rate than 
white homeowners, no matter what their income is. And I countered with, well, do you know why that is? Because typically, no matter what your income is, you're taking care of multiple family members. And if a family member needs help, you're going to help that family member before you pay your mortgage. Or because the wealth is not that deep in the family, it takes one catastrophic event to just mess everything up. So you just can't throw out statistics like that. So that's what I just don't like when you get these, again, these administrative and these people up here, they throw out these statistics. You got to look at what, why is that? There's a reason, you know, what else is going on? Again, we don't have a lot of intergenerational wealth built in our families where a catastrophic event can happen. It's just a little blip and you don't feel it. Usually it's a big, huge bump in the road and there's going to be some other things that happen. The other thing that I think is a problem is we talk about wealth creation, wealth building in the Black community. And a lot of people think that starts with some type of ownership, right? Either home ownership or business ownership. If you look at the type of jobs that Black people have easy access to, those are lower paid jobs. You can afford a house or whatever based upon your income. So you're going to afford a lower valued house, but then couple that with your house not being valued as much by appraisers. So again, it's just this whole big mess, right, that needs to be fixed in a lot of different places. You couple that too with just instant Black institutions, whether it be K-12 schools or A&T, have always typically looked to be underfunded. Somehow, we always overcome and make a way. I think about how much further we could be if we didn't have these obstacles. And why is that fearful to some people? I don't understand. <laughs> I don't get it. You think about that quote again that Bloomberg made. You add 1.5 trillion to the economy. That benefits everybody. Not just one group of people. That benefits the whole entire country. But there's just perceived power that they think they'll lose if they do that. So even with that perceived power, has there ever been in the 50s or 60s some Samaritans that have been like, let me assist out with affordable housing? Have there been any projects like that? Are also in the 50s and 60s, have there ever been someone that's somehow defeated the odds of redlining and gotten into housing that's in a predominantly white neighborhood and would have been the effects? So that happened all the time. But then what happened was is what was called blockbusting. So if one Black person came into the neighborhood, then it was called blockbusting and white flight, right? And then everybody white left. They moved out. They moved over to different neighborhoods. There's a beach. You heard of Topsail Beach in North Carolina? So it's spelled T-O-P-S-A-I-L. You would think it's Topsail, but it's pronounced Topsail. So Topsail Beach, not so much now, but back in the heyday was where all the Black people who own beach houses live. And you could probably look it up, and this is anecdotal. This is, and I can't remember the doctor's name, but there is a doctor who went with a white friend, and the white friend represented like he was going to buy the property, and the doctor ended up buying the property and then sold it to other Black people. There was always ways like that where Black people went in and tricked the system because they had 
someone to help them. What ended up happening is then that, every, you know, it was white flight. Everybody white left. They fled. They didn't stay. There is also a systematic approach by the realtors across the country. They called it the freedom to choose. They would promote segregation. I have the freedom to choose who I want to live or I want to sell my house to. But this was probably going on around the 50s through 60s again. That's when the boom was going on. So if it wasn't the federal government outright doing stuff, it was private sector also fighting. For the last question, I know you've already stated what your recommendations are to fix this. Is there anything not only at the local level that we can do at this, or does it always have to be at federal? Since a lot of these is pretty much like federal regulations. Right. So it's actually state. Okay. So the state of North Carolina, they have, the legislatures have taken a lot of the power away from local municipalities. And they do this on purpose. So a lot of times local municipalities can make decisions about how they want to zone things, right? So for instance, some cities have decided that there is a zoning called an ancillary dwelling. Ancillary dwelling means that you have your main house in the front. You may have a deep lot, right? You have houses where the lot goes really deep, right? The house may sit up closer to the front. There may be more land or the house is really far back. And there's more land in the front and you can build another house there, really, because the lot is so big. A way that some cities have said, hey, a good way to to kill two birds with one stone. And that is to help build some wealth for someone because they can build an additional house on their land. Right. And rent it out. And that can solve part of the housing crises and potentially what they would help they would hope is that house would be affordable that you would rent that house out at an affordable level to somebody a city like durham has started doing that the state legislature came through and basically passed some laws recently that basically are limiting cities on those ancillary dwellings they have done that on a number of different things as to what cities can do. One is authorities, right? So like a housing authority or some cities in Georgia, for instance, have created redevelopment authorities or land bank authorities. And what those authorities are what is called quasi-governmental. So that means they have some governmental powers, but at the same time, they're really uh, private. So they can act as a private sector. What the state legislature has done is basically say that cities can't create authorities for what they need to do. If we were able to create a land bank authority, for instance, so what a land bank authority could do is, let's say you have houses or land that went into tax default, right? So somebody didn't pay their property taxes. So that land reverts back to the city or the county, wherever it's located, or that uh, a property that the owner died and they had some heirs, but nobody can find the heirs, right? So it's heirs property. They can't find the heirs anywhere. 
or you had someone who was a slumlord and they keep getting fined by the city for code violations and the city finally just takes the property, right? So where does all that property go? Right now, it usually just goes to a department within the city. But what if you could create a whole entire authority to deal with all that property? And so what they do is then that those authorities, they take that property, they take that property and they clean up the title. If it's heirs or whatever property or the title is because they got the tax liens on it, right? So they'll clean up the title so it has a clear title so it can be transferred to someone else for ownership. They could possibly put some infrastructure to the property, meaning they can put water sewer to the property or whatever, or grade the property out. And then they can convey that property over to a nonprofit and build a house or build some other type of affordable housing or build some other type of economic development use for that will contribute to the community. Because a lot of times these types of properties that we're talking about, they're going to be in the Black neighborhoods. They're going to be in the Black neighborhoods. And so the state says, yeah, y'all cities can't create authorities. They took that option away from cities. It's just, and it's other zoning things they have done. It's just constant things like that. And it's primarily because we have a red-led legislature, right? And um, urban areas, because, you know, North Carolina is one of the most urbanized states. So if you think about all the cities in North Carolina, Charlotte, Asheville, Greenville, Fayetteville, Greensboro, Durham, Raleigh, Chapel Hill, Wilmington. That's a lot of cities in one state. But if you look like at a state like Georgia, you have what? Atlanta? In Savannah. Savannah. That's where I'm from. Okay, Augusta. You got those three. That's it. And then everything else is pretty rural. Typically, the urban areas are blue. Right. So typically you got a, a island of blue and a sea of red. But the thing is that to me is funny about this is pretty much any of the rule, any of the laws or policies that would be passed that would help the urban areas will also help the rural poor areas. The same thing could be applied in Georgia. They allow enterprise zones. And so enterprise zones allow you to declare area. First of all, it's in an area that you can claim an enterprise zone is usually a poverty level or something like that, like a high poverty level in that census tract. And so when somebody is embarking on some type of development that is affordable housing or economic development, they will say, I'm going to do 20% of the houses affordable, or I'm going to 50% of the jobs will go to, or 20% of the jobs will go to people at 50% AMI, that's area median income or less. And so I'm going to dedicate this, either these jobs or this housing or something like that to the people that need the help. And so what happens is, and then in that enterprise zone, the property taxes are abated. So they're abated for 10 years. So five years, the property taxes are fully abated. And then the next five years, they go up 20% every year until year 11, you get the full taxes. You can't do that in North Carolina. Other thing you can do in Georgia that you can't do here is they have um, homestead tax exemption. So if you're 62 or older, you can apply for tax exemption for your house that you own. And so your taxes either get frozen or they get cut in half, one or two, whatever the case is. That's a lot of times, too, why seniors on fixed income after you retire lose their housing 
because as the property values go up, your taxes go up. And so then even if their house is paid off, sometimes the taxes become unaffordable. When I was in Atlanta, I was executive director of a nonprofit and we did an owner-occupied rehab program. A condition of the program was that the owner had to have home insurance. And so a lot of these elderly people didn't even have home insurance on their houses because it was either they were paying property tax or they were paying homeowners insurance. Typically what happens is that the federal programs come down to the cities a lot of times. Sometimes they'll go to the states. The state may run a federal program for a rural area that may not have a strong municipality, but you have thing called, it's called CDBG. CDBG stands for Community Development Block Grant Funds. That's usually federal. So a lot of times CDBG is used for infrastructure. It's used a lot of times in connection with some type of economic development or affordable housing. The home program is also for housing. That's a federal program that is typically gone to the cities directly, but it goes to the state for some supplemental funding for affordable housing or for rural areas. A lot of times federal dollars come directly down to the municipalities, to the cities. Sometimes they go through the state, depending upon what it is. The state also funds, they have a budget, they fund things, they fund economic development, they fund affordable housing, and then they create the laws that are statewide laws that would either help or hinder the type of work that we're talking about doing. Well, thank you. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. This is great. (laughs) This is very informative. I appreciate it. Appreciate you coming. Follow the podcast on IG at funding underscore is underscore the underscore matter. Follow the podcast on Twitter at funds underscore do underscore matter. To subscribe to this podcast, you can find it on Spotify, Apple, or other podcast platforms. This is a bi-weekly podcast and I'll see you in two weeks.